Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. It is Friday, March 26th, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? You know, another week down into the abyss that is the COVID season. It's been a pretty good weather week, at least. So I got my first proper bike ride into Mississauga, which was nice. And I've probably been spending like three hours average just walking sunbathing something each day this past week so that's been better how about you nice uh yeah it's been a bit of a week from hell for me a lot of assignments as we gear up towards the end of the semester and um a lot of stuff going on I was able to get out yesterday morning when it was probably the nicest it's been for a morning weather in a while and shoot some hoops at the local park, which I hadn't done in a while. And they had just strung up a new net. So I got some satisfying sounds out of that. And uh, that kept me going yesterday, but uh, feeling a little bit <laughs> beat down today, but we'll, we'll get through it. We're going to get through it. I got NBA trade trade deadline to really energize me, keep me going. Uh, and of course a Leafs win can never complain about that. Two points is two points at the, uh, classic ua going to shoot some hoops before you get hyped to follow the trade deadline (laughs) yeah i guess so i it i've just been so busy that it kind of snuck up on me that the trade deadline was happening because it really like there hadn't been much action until the day itself and then we got plenty to talk about coming up on the show uh but honestly i've been just trying to get out as much as i can because it's it's a nice easy activity that you can do by yourself uh, that gets the heart rate going a little bit, which is what I've needed over the past couple weeks. <laughs> yeah, true. I I do want to pick up a ball and grab it for our local one, but it's always so busy that, yeah. Makes... Well, that, <laughs> that's why I'm going at like eight in the morning. <laughs> okay, let's outline the agenda we got coming up today. We're going to break down. Uh, I'm going to not talk about every trade that happened yesterday because some of them just aren't that important, but I have outlined my winners and losers from the NBA trade deadline yesterday. Uh, a tiny March Madness preview for this weekend, the Sweet 16. Uh, then we've got combat corner, some talk in hockey, uh, a couple of football notes and a couple of baseball notes. Uh, should be a pretty good show today. And uh, I guess without further ado, we shall jump right to the association. Uh, where we had the NBA trade deadline. It was dead for weeks, and nothing had really come out. Um, Lots of rumors swirling. But then we got some bombshell trades, and and I guess people who – a lot of fans follow the NBA purely for the transactional component, the team-building component. Uh, They'll watch highlights, and then they'll basically just want to see their players get moved from team to team. It's become almost – that is a spectacle within itself. Like the first day of free agency is often just as followed as the NBA finals. And so this was something that people have been waiting for, waiting for. And I think they probably got enough to at least whet their appetite. And I, I still uh, saw plenty of disappointment on Twitter. Yes. And there obviously are trades that people want to see happen. Uh, definitely some of those top contenders didn't make any serious moves. Um, but still some, some great stuff that happened and lots for us to break down. And so I guess without further ado, I will jump into my winners and losers from the trade deadline. Uh, 
I guess I'll start with my very first winner. And that would be the Nuggets of Denver. They <laughs> make moves on the trade deadline. They acquire JaVale McGee for Isaiah Hardenstein in two seconds. Uh, then the big move for them was grabbing Aaron Gordon from the Orlando Magic, along with Garrett Clark, for Gary Harris, RJ Hampton, and a protected 2025 first-round pick. Now, yesterday was not a great day to be named Gary. All Garys in the NBA got traded yesterday. <laughs> Um, two of them in this deal. And what I love for the Nuggets here is they get a, a rim-protecting big man in JaVale McGee uh, for not much, and that was something that they were lacking. I think they missed Plumlee's presence after he went to Detroit in free agency, and they needed a guy to protect the rim coming off the bench, give them a little bit more energy. Uh, and I think Hardenstein just wasn't providing the energy that they required. So they grab McGee and then they grab Aaron Gordon, who immediately can jump into their starting lineup is a huge upgrade over Millsap's minutes. Um, Aaron Gordon already in his, I think, eighth season in the league. He came in the league when he's 18. He's 25 now. Um, so feels like he's been in the league forever, but he's still pretty young. He's a guy in Orlando that has constantly been surrounded by terrible spacing a lot of big men who can't shoot and a lot of perimeter players who can't shoot um, obviously we know some firsthand experience of the defense he can provide he was an excellent defender of Kawhi Leonard in that first round playoff series when Toronto and Orlando played and uh, he's got the physical tools to match up against anyone kind of one through five and so this is a guy that can fill some of those holes defensively in this Denver Nuggets lineup because a lot of their guys don't play a high level of defense. And so he can hopefully be that, that stop gap for them. And then on offense, he's not going to be required to do much. He's really great on spot up shooting. He's not that great off the dribble shooting. So this fits well for him. He'll be doing a lot of spot up shooting. And as a cutter, he's another huge target for Jokic to find. Uh, one of the big things that people were loving about Michael Porter Jr. is that he's this huge frame provides a massive target for Jokic to pass to when cutting uh, back door or coming off screens. And so Aaron Gordon's another body like that. And Jokic can actually send the ball up there for him to go and get because he's a great lob threat. So I just, I love the move for the, for the Nuggets because Gary Harris overpaid and really has taken a step back. They get off of his contract. RJ Hampton could end up being a really, really solid point guard. Um, but not in their timeline and they've picked up Facundo Compazzo who's been great for them off the bench kind of took over what maybe RJ Hampton thought he was going to be and they just have so much depth at the guard position that they can move off of him and then a 2025 first is you got to throw in a first round pick for teams to be satisfied I'm not sure what the protections are but it feels like it won't be that much to give up for them because they're going to be good for quite a few years so I love those moves for the Nuggets uh, I guess that kind of feeds into my second winner is the Orlando Magic. Now, it might not feel like they're a winner right now because they've been in now this perpetual rebuild for a couple of decades. Um, they had all these top 10 picks that just never managed to fit together or come to fruition. And so finally realizing that they're not going to go anywhere with this team, they moved their top three uh, healthy players Nikola Vucevic going to the Chicago Bulls with Alfred Camino uh, for Wendell Carter Jr., Otto Porter, and two first-round picks. They are protected. They are uh, top four protected picks. 
so Orlando getting some pretty decent picks because I don't think the Chicago Bulls are going to be that upper tier team. So it's going to be some mid first round picks for them, which is nice. The 2023 one, you never know. It could end up being like fifth or sixth. Uh, so that's pretty good draft capital that you get for Vucevic. And Wendell Carter is a guy who just never really got a shot in Chicago, but he has the pedigree coming from Duke, a top five pick, a lot of upside for him. And so a guy that they can throw in and really give the reps and see what he's got. I think that's a pretty decent return for Vucevic, who's probably playing the best he's ever going to play. I don't really see him taking another step. So Orlando selling high and getting the most for that asset. And then they move Evan Fournier for two second round picks. Um, Nothing special there, but they they were going to lose him in the offseason anyways. So you get something back for him. And the Aaron Gordon trade, again, not the best that you could probably do for Aaron Gordon, but you get RJ Hampton, who kind of, you can play with Cole Anthony or with Markel Fultz, see which one of those guys really wants to take control of that starting point guard spot. And they get a little bit of draft capital. And so the magic making the most out of a pretty poor situation, they've got a bunch of guys who are injured, who hopefully will be back. And Terrence Ross was killing it yesterday on Twitter with all the memes that he was sending. My personal favorite being the, uh, I am the captain now, (laughs) which, uh, which terrifying as a magic fan, you don't want Terrence Ross running your offense, but (laughs) funny for the meme's sake, right? My third winner, the Miami heat who look to be once again, going in for a deep playoff run. Uh, When you've got Jimmy Butler in the prime of his career, you've got Bam Adebayo emerging as a, a top five center in this league. You've got the pieces, you got the shooters. You don't have to give up and, any major pieces and you add two really solid guys and the even before the last second Oladipo trade the heat with a great peripheral move to get Nemanja Bielitsa from Sacramento for literally nothing for Chris Silva and Mo Harkless guys who they probably wanted to get rid of they get Bielitsa who is a stretch for um he's a smart player he he's a guy who again probably squandered a little bit in Sacramento just because that team is not very good, but a guy you could definitely see being really, really solid for this Miami heat team. And so it's a great value pickup. And then of course the big splash, right. As the deadline sounded, uh, Victor Oladipo to the Miami heat for Avery Bradley, Kelly Olynyk, and a pick swap. And so again, essentially Miami's not really giving up anything uh, that pick swap might come into effect if their pick ends up being higher than, uh, Houston's, but not really giving up a draft pick. And then you give up again, two mid-level contracts in Bradley and Olenek who you just replaced Olenek with Bielitsa and Avery Bradley is, I guess has not really figured into their rotation. So again, two moves by Pat Riley, where you basically give up nothing and you get two guys who are going to come in and play really important minutes for your team. And so Miami making some great moves there, uh, great value adds, It'll be interesting to see what role Oladipo is going to have, if he's going to be starting or if he's going to be your flamethrower off the bench. My guess is he'll be starting because that's what he'll want. Um, but he fits in well there with with Butler and Bam. And then you just add a shooter and you've got Bielitz on the floor. That's a pretty pretty scary looking lineup for Miami to run. And, and maybe it also puts Hero in a more comfortable position. He's had to do a lot this season and his efficiency has dipped. But now if he's a guy coming off your bench and just looking to score, uh, that's probably the better role for him. So again, a, a, a move that has benefits outside of just the players you're adding. 
another winner, the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, this one partially because a lot of the other top, like the Nets, the Bucks, um, I guess even the Knicks didn't really make any big ads trying to move their way up the, the standings. The Heat obviously make the move, which is threatening, but the Sixers, not a lot of their competition made major moves at the deadline. And they pick up George Hill, uh, along with Iggy Bridzakis, the Canadian, uh, for Terrence Ferguson and or that was, I don't even know if he's on their team. He, oh, he was on the Nets, I think. Oh my gosh, he's been all over the place. But they give up Tony Bradley in two seconds to the Oklahoma City Thunder. Oklahoma City Thunder up to 34 draft picks over the next 10 years, which is ridiculous. Uh, but George Hill, great ad. This is when you knew they were out on Kyle Lowry in their trade talks, and we'll get to him later. Um, they add George Hill. He's been great for quite a long time now on on playoff teams he's played with the Cavs the Pacers the Bucks uh and he's a guy who can shoot the ball really well he can run a bit of your offense so just more playmaking and more shooting to put in that lineup alongside Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid uh he can run a great pick and roll set with Dwight Howard if you have him coming off the bench so again nice little uh kind of secondary option because they didn't knew they weren't getting Lowry they didn't want to give up uh, some of the packages proposed, if I was a Sixers fan, I'd be going crazy because Lowry is great, but giving up Tyrese Maxey, Bible, and two firsts would be absurd. There'd be an absurd price for Lowry. And so they don't end up giving up any of that, and they still get a solid point guard in George Hill. So a great move for Philadelphia. Uh, the Utah Jazz are a winner in my eyes because, again, no, no really top-tier competitors in the West made moves, neither of the LA teams and Phoenix didn't really make any big moves uh, and they get Matt Thomas for a future second rounder, small price to pay, just add another shooter. Um, I don't know if Matt Thomas will play a ton of minutes in the playoffs for them, but in the regular season, for sure, just adding to their depth of shooting um, feels a little bit like baseball, adding a, another reliever. You just can never have enough shooting in the NBA. And so nice little small move for them, but this was more of a winner because no one else in their stratosphere really made a, a big important move. Uh, and then the Golden State Warriors, another like minor winner, but I like they moved Marquise Chris to the Spurs and due to some sort of cap shenaniganery, this essentially opens up luxury tax room for them for injured players. So because Clay Thompson uh, injured right now and obviously Steph Curry injured too, it's basically just a cap flexibility move because they're going to still be capped out for quite a few years to come. Um, so just a nice uh, financial breath of fresh air. And so that's why I had to include them because they didn't really do anything, but uh, they still benefited their team in some way. So now we move to the losers. And I was going to say that both of these teams lost this trade, but the more that I thought about it, um, I came around a little bit. And that is the Atlanta Hawks and the Los Angeles Clippers exchanging uh, point guards. I guess you'd call Lou Williams a point guard. He's he's more of a shooting guard. But Lou Williams goes to the Hawks for Rajon Rondo. Uh, Lou has consistently been just kind of the worst playoff player to have on your team because in the playoffs with the increased physicality, his scoring touch dissipates a little bit, and then he is an absolute – uh, swinging fence gate on defense, just blow by after blow by. And the Clippers knew that 
even though they they might need his scoring, they get plenty of scoring from other options, and they just needed to get off of him because he cannot play defense in those crunch time, and he's going to get abused by uh, some of those top players on the other teams. So they pick up Rajon Rondo, play off Rondo. I initially was hesitant about this trade again because you have your concerns about Rondo, where he doesn't try in the regular season. He doesn't shoot it that well. But then you think of back to bubble Rondo last year, who was a 40% catch and shoot three point shooter and was basically the third best player on that Lakers team. Um, And I guess the Clippers are hoping that he has that kind of upside. He moves the ball, which is what they need. They are very stagnant in crunch time. Uh, So he'll move the ball. I worry that he's going to try and alpha this team and, and it might again, fracture their locker room. So it's, it's not a move that really bumps the Clippers up, but you could see a positive scenario for them. So that's why I was hesitant to mark them as a loser, but definitely the Atlanta Hawks loser because they add Lou Williams, who is basically kind of like Trey young in a sense. And I don't get why they wanted to have that. They just, I guess were really desperate to move off of Rondo. They get two seconds from the Clippers. Um, They, yeah. And they had plenty of other guys who were, either movable they have a directive from ownership to win now and I think they could have made one move to really upgrade their roster and they didn't do that and they get Lou Williams who is going to want to do everything that Trey does but now he's just going to sit off the ball and, and be upset and go to Magic City and get lemon pepper wings like after every game which is obviously the story from the bubble that popped up many times now he's in Atlanta but yeah I don't understand it for the Hawks but can't argue with how they've been playing recently. So I guess they're just looking to ride it out into the off season. The Portland trailblazers I have as a loser. I'm curious about this one. Yeah. So my thoughts here. So let's the trade first, the Toronto Raptors, of course, our hometown team. And, and one of the things that we were all buzzing about here in Canada, they send Norman Powell to the Portland trailblazers for Gary Trent Jr. and Rodney Hood. I have the Blazers as a loser, not because of who they get in this trade. Norman Powell, awesome. He's been having a breakout year. He's going to bring them some additional scoring. I just think that he's not the right fit there because they already have Damon CJ, who basically provide what Norm provides. And it doesn't allow them to upgrade a position of need, which is that wing defender. They consistently do not have guys who can defend the top players in the Western Conference. Your LeBron James, your Anthony Davis, your Luka Doncic, your Devin Booker, uh, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, right? Those are the guys that you need to be able to handle if you want to have any chance of moving through the Western Conference. And while you can definitely try and outscore teams, Norman Powell is not going to be that guy who provides the defense. I think everyone's a little bit higher on, on Norm's defense, and he's definitely had some great performances in the past of defensive energy moments. But as a consistent one-on-one defender, I just don't know if he's going to be able to keep up with some of these bigger guys because he's only 6'3". Um, and it puts a cap on his defensive capabilities. And so if you're running lineups out there with Dame, McCollum, and Norman Powell all on the floor, you're giving up a lot of size against these Western Conference teams that have a lot of size. And so I would have liked Aaron Gordon better for Portland. Obviously, that didn't end up happening. And so I think they lose because they give up a great young player in Gary Trent, and I can get to him in a second. Um, And they basically get an older version 
it's a rental and it just I don't know if it moves the needle for them enough uh, in terms of their like defensive potential. Um, but gonna miss Norm, man. I had to take a moment to just shout him out. He <laughs> broke on the scene as a rookie, came in and clamped up Paul George in that Indiana Pacers playoff series. Never forget that steal he had late uh, and the huge throwdown to tie it. I was watching that yesterday, playing Marvin's room, just in my feels. Gonna miss that guy. He's been a great part of this team. A lot of bench energy and has scored a ton of points for us. Just been an absolute flamethrower. NBA champion. And uh, we salute you, Norman Powell. Thank you so much for everything you've done for Toronto. And best of luck in Portland. And then we'll see where he signs in the offseason because he's probably going to opt out of that that player option because he definitely has earned more than his share of money with his performance this season. So we get to Gary Trent Jr. Obviously, Rodney Hood comes back in this trade. The Raptors might hold on to him. Uh, they could also just buy him out and he'll go somewhere else. That was not the main piece of this trade. Gary Trent Jr., 22 years of age, 6'5", 215. Uh, he is an restricted free agent in this offseason so the Raptors will either extend him or put a qualifying offer out and they'll probably match what other whatever other teams offer him so he's going to be on our team for the next couple of years uh it feels he feels a little bit like a young norm which is interesting you trade off of the the older guy who's about to get paid who you can't afford to get a younger version who you have control over which I'm always a fan of Uh, Gary Trent's a little bit longer, a little bit more defensive upside, and he's already a career 40% three-point shooter, um, had an excellent, excellent uh, bubble playoff run last year for Portland, uh, was an absolute flamethrower from three and was playing some great defensive minutes, uh, was one of the main reasons why him and Dame Lillard really were the key reasons why that Blazers team made their uh, improbable run to grab that eighth playoff spot. Um, so I'm really excited to see what he adds. Again, right now with a lineup of, of Lowry, Van Vliet, Trent, OG, Pascal, it's a ton of defense on the floor, which I love. I love guys who play two-way, and I think Trent has a lot of upside as just a player in general. And so I'm happy with the return because you sell Norman Powell, and you could, of course, get draft picks from a contender but those draft picks are going to be late and um, I'd rather have a sure thing that you have control over and are able to develop so I'm happy picking up Gary Trent and uh, we'll see how he fits in uh, in this new role Um, looking to see what he can do and uh, sad about Norm leaving but excited to see what Gary Trent can do All right, we will move on to more losers. Uh, I have the New Orleans Pelicans as losers, and not because they didn't trade Lonzo Ball. I actually was a fan of them keeping him. Uh, That was a big name that people wanted to see get moved. But I think Lonzo fits well with Zion as a playmaker, as a guy who can run in transition. Uh, His shooting has drastically increased. Um, He doesn't need the ball in his hands, so he's a guy you can put around Zion. And so I think it was smart of new Orleans to at least ride it out and see what he's going to be asking for in restrictive free agency. Uh, but they do, they move off of uh, JJ Redick and Nicolo Melli. They send them to the D- Dallas Mavericks for James Johnson, Wesley Wandu, and they pick 
I think they're just losers because that just <laughs> continues to restrict the spacing on the floor for their top guys. JJ Redick is kind of, it, or he's the best shooter on their team and he spaces the floor so wonderfully for those guys. And so moving him and Melly, who has come in at times to play a stretch five. And in those minutes, Zion has just absolutely wrecked the entire league. And so they move two guys that, that space the floor and it's just going to bundle things up. I don't think they're really trying to run for that play in seed anymore with this trade. Uh, I guess you look to add one more pick, see how you can recreate the roster in the offseason. And then this window is open with Zion already. He is so incredibly fun to watch and so dynamic that starting next season, New Orleans, they have to be trying to go for one of those top six playoff seats because this guy is ready, locked, and loaded to take over the league. It does feel like they're just a couple stretch players away, and Reddick was not having the season they hoped for. So retool reload and try again this coming off season i agree with you that this team looks ready just it's not quite clicking on the three-point spacing the spacing and the biggest thing for them is when their top guys are going to decide to lock in defensively because right now their defense is atrocious it's like the worst defense in the league especially based on the talent that they have that's another reason why you don't trade lonzo he's been their best defender consistently all season uh but as soon as Zion and Brandon Ingram decide to play passable defense, that's when the ceiling of this team gets raised. And so you're also looking in the offseason to maybe add a couple more of those two-way guys. Uh, and Redick obviously tries hard, but he's not the best defensive presence. And so um, there probably might be some options out there for you to, to upgrade at least defensively uh, and still have that spacing. The Houston Rockets are another loser of mine. Uh, they get basically nothing for Oladipo, and that was who they wanted in the James Harden trade as opposed to Karis Levert, and I think Levert would have been a much better fit on that team, but they make a mistake. They go with Oladipo, hoping he can raise his trade value and move off of him, but they get Bradley and Olenek, so basically nothing for him. I don't even know why you trade him at that point. I guess just to get something, um, and they're still stuck in a weird spot because they don't have much to show for the James Harden trade. Uh, they had to give up a bunch of picks for Westbrook, so they don't even have their own pick, really. Um, they're basically playing out this season with a mishmash roster of Wall, Wood, uh, Augustine, who they got in the P.J. Tucker trade. Jay Sean Tate is lovely, so they'll keep on They'll keep him. You've got Eric Gordon still. like Just a really weird roster, and if you don't have control over your first pick, then they're just going to be looking to play spoiler, but they've lost. They went on whatever 18 game losing streak that they just snapped. And yeah, just looking bleak for them. I, I feel for Houston fans. The Cleveland Cavaliers I have as a loser. They did get something for JaVale McGee, which was great for them, but Andre Drummond was another guy they were trying to move at the deadline and they're going to end up having to buy him out. So you lose that for nothing, which sucks because you want to at least get something. Um, so that's why I have them as a loser that they weren't able to move Andre Drummond anywhere. And last but not least, we get to our final loser. And again, this is a controversial take. I, I thought he wasn't going anywhere and he didn't end up going anywhere. But I think Kyle Lowry comes out of this a little bit of a loser, if not for the fact that he is not moving to a contender where he can try and go for another championship. It's that it feels like his trade value 
ended up being diminished by the end of the trade deadline and, and teams really put a ceiling on what they thought he was and what they were willing to give up for him. Uh, and it feels like there's still a little bit of disrespect going Lowry's way. So at, at the beginning of the day, I was saying no way he gets traded unless he wants to. Obviously, all that stuff came out the night before when they beat the Nuggets. He was plus 43 in that game. He looked pretty emotional leaving the arena, gave the peace signs to the camera. Drake called him while he's in the press conference. All signs seemed to be that he actually thought he was leaving. And so that kind of ticked me off that, okay, there is going to be something that happens here because I didn't think he was going to get traded. As the day goes on, you see Philadelphia's in, Miami's in, and then the Lakers enter the conversation, which was really, really interesting. Uh, the Sixers, of course, as soon as they get George Hill, I knew they were out. They weren't willing to give up. Tyrese Maxey is probably their main sticking point. And then, of course, with Thibel and two firsts, that's a big package to give up if you're the Sixers. Um, and then the Heat and the Lakers in on Lowry. But the sticking point for both of those teams was Tyler Hero and Taylor Horton Tucker. Tyler Hero, a little bit more understandable, has an untapped potential, and you can see the ceiling with him. Um, and Miami is just really high on him. They were trying to center their package around Duncan Robinson, a Kelly Olenek, and maybe a, a pick swap of some kind. And that just didn't do it for the Raptors. It wasn't enough. You want to get a haul if you're going to move off of your franchise player. Um, and then on the Lakers side, if Talon Horton Tucker is the guy holding up your deal, it's a little odd to me because he he's been fine. And the, the body type is there, but I don't think he's really going to develop into anything too special. And so if you're not trading for Kyle Lowry in this, when you have LeBron James and Anthony Davis because of Taylor Horton Tucker, I, yeah, it, <laughs> I guess the Lakers think he's going to be the next Dwayne Wade or something. That was funny. Um, their package was going to be Schroeder, uh, KCP, and then uh, Taylor Horton Tucker and probably I guess like another player of some kind, the Raptors even moved Terrence Davis. They moved Matt Thomas to open up roster spots for a potential trade, which didn't end up happening. Uh, in the end, both of those guys, we get second round picks. I'm not really worried about losing either of those guys, especially Terrence Davis, who of course had his issues and really hasn't played the same this season. So um, not too much of a problem there, but just, yeah, Lowry in the end, these teams, had their guys who they didn't want to give up for Lowry and shows that the league still undervalues him compared to how we value him. And so I'm okay with him staying. We love him here in Toronto. Uh, we'll see what happens at the end of the season, but for now, Toronto fans enjoy the ride. Um, I'm upset that they didn't upgrade at the center position at all, but after you move off of Powell, it, it's a lateral move. They can definitely still compete with Gary Trent, but it does feel like they are set with this team uh, for the rest of the season and whatever happens happens. Uh, yeah. So shout out Kyle Lowry, man. We're happy that you're still here. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. We were talking all season about, are we going to trade him? Are we going to trade him? And then everyone in Toronto, pretty emotional at the thought of him leaving. So it'll be still, I think that sentiment will bubble right back up come free agency, but we'll have, plenty of time to talk about there maybe after the draft after any potential trade moves there after we see how the rest of this Raptors season plays out and have a better idea of uh 
what exactly next season has in store for us. Yeah. But yeah. My heart wouldn't have been able to handle losing Pal Lowry and Mr. 99 all in one day. <laughs> it's a lot to ask uh, yeah. of us. So there it goes. There's my long-winded winners and losers of the NBA trade deadline. March Madness, real quick. Uh, the Sweet 16 this weekend, going to be some great games. And if you are an NBA fan, I suggest you tune in to watch Evan Mobley against the Oregon Ducks this weekend. And the other game on tap, uh, Michigan and Florida State to watch Franz Wagner versus Scotty Barnes. Uh, so those are my two recommendations. If you have time this weekend, tune in and watch March Madness. That is it for my basketball corner. We'll take a quick break and come oh, back. Going to learn about the terrifying power of Francis Ngannou when we return. <laughs> and we're back. I just spent five minutes showing Owen Francis Ngannou's last four fights. That's four fights in five minutes for a stupidly short combined shared octagon time. And he is going to be sharing the octagon in the main event against Stipe Miocic, challenging him for the belt for the second time. And I'm so excited for this fight that I just had to try and share some of that hyper buzz in that five minutes because I, words and numbers and stats can't really explain how terrifying Francis Ngannou is, eh? Yes, sir. Um... I recall us talking about him many times over the summer and definitely a guy who pops up on SportsCenter, but a physical specimen who can end fights in a hurry and definitely a, a scary prospect for anyone going into the octagon with him. A scary prospect for everyone so far that's not named uh, Stipe Miocic and Derek Lewis pretty much. Um the Derek Lewis fight a bit of a joke of course but yeah this guy makes mixed martial arts look like a very simple and straightforward sport like he, he doesn't have to land clean he the shot against blades looked like it went through the guard over the ear the shot against Dos Santos you can't really even tell what did it obvious or excuse me not dos santos uh, velasquez you can't tell which shot put him down really the knee did come into play but that was sparked by the fists um the shot against dos santos coming like over a behind turned around opponent just like and followed up with three more to put it away in quick succession and the shot against uh, Rosenstrike just in a kind of fluid wild man while taking a punch, uh, sheer terrifying athleticism. But despite all that terrifyingness, it's really hard to tell if this fight is going to go any different if Francis Ngannou has improved against Stipe Miocic since their first fight. And I feel like I'll get to Stipe, but most of the questions for me lay with Nganu, um, and they're kind of twofold. The first is really the mental side of things, because this is a guy who's not impervious to those struggles, and we saw that in the fight against Derek Lewis. Um, just his ego was on top of the world go heading into that first title fight against Stipe, and he just got humiliated. I the MMA pundits were like asking, is this guy even a mixed martial artist? Does he even like know what wrestling is? And that was 
over-exaggerated, over-the-top, disrespecting Stipe a lot, in my opinion. But he did get thoroughly outclassed and in a way that just left him, like, so helpless, especially, like, the cardio warfare Stipe implemented on him. Um, And you saw that in the Derek Lewis fight and just him having the mental struggles, Dana White, like throwing, hanging him out to dry in the presser after that event. Um, And he was the underdog coming in against Curtis Blades. And a lot of people thought the career was over of Francis Ngannou. And he did a fantastic job of revitalizing himself evidently as he's now the betting favorite going back in against Stipe despite how their first fight went and just on the basis of those last four fights um but Stipe Miocic isn't Jarzinho Rosenstrike he isn't Junior Dos Santos he is probably the face that Francis sees in his nightmares when he goes to sleep and flashes back to that night at UFC 220 so in a sense he's exercised his demons like coming off the low of that Lewis fight and turning his career around with this legendary run he's had but I I think there's still uh still something there still like that cursed artifact at the bottom of the basement or whatever you want to say and that's the face of Stipe Miocic and the memories of that first night so is he going to have the mental fortitude to get in there and perform at his best without doubting himself um, that it's not going to be clear until it starts, no matter what he says in uh, his pressers and interviews. And then the second question is how, like it's such a mix of keep what got you to the dance party, but, clearly clearly needing to do something better than he did in their first matchup and it's just a problem of Stipe having answers that no one else in the division really has um he in the first fight really he won that fight in the first round he was able to read everything Nganu wanted to do and have an answer for it if Nganu wanted to swing wildly with hooks and uppercuts Stipe was either able to duck out of the way and reset or make him pay with a takedown and take some gas out of the tank. Uh, if he he tried for one very brief stretch to jab with Stipe and make it a little more technical, and Stipe just hit him with the best shot he hit him with all night. Like, you're not the technical striker. If you want to play that game, I'm going to beat you in spades. And then the wrestling was just top-notch, like showing the pedigree of being the best heavyweight in the world. Um, the, the running double legs across the cage, the singles to make him balance, the like ducking under shots and putting him on his back. It, I think it, it was just such a virtuoso wrestling performance that there's not that much to break down and talk about the like mercilessness of just keeping a hand always on the back of his neck just to make him suffer and gas and then like finding the body shots the elbows whenever they're there outside of the main goal of making this giant man exhausted um so that's the question for me if 
if Nganu wants to play the technical game, I don't know if he can against Stipe. Like, I, he's had, he was only five years into his mixed martial arts career. Now, three years later, that's almost doubling the time spent in the gym, time spent at the experience. And you think that first year, second year probably wasn't as high level training as he's been able to get in recent years. So, I'm sure there are improvements to the technical game, and you've seen hints of that in his very brief fights. He's been sitting behind that jab. He set up the shot against Blades with a lot of feints to get there. So there's something to be said for sure for having a more technical delivery mechanism for his power. I just don't know how technical he should get. Because if he completely gets away from that wildness that like worked for him, you saw best in the Yarzinho Rosenstrike fight and sort of in the JDS fight as well, of just I'm gonna swing a hook and when it lands, that's it. If he gets away from that too much and just tries to be a completely different fighter in there, I feel like Stipe is just gonna outdo him and outread him in the uh, jabs and leg kicks. Um, but if he gets too wild then again I think Stipe is just going to read him and make him pay with takedowns and time shots so it's going to be about finding that happy medium for Francis Ngannou between setting up the shots, staying technical and enough to not be read by Stipe but like not getting away from your bread and butter, not hiding and putting away that was wild swinging shots and I think there's going to be a lot of mental pressure bearing down on him as he tries to navigate that balance. On Stipe's side, since then, he's had his trilogy with Daniel Cormier, getting knocked out in the first round of the first one and winning the second two fights. Stipe Miocic, the only guy who has two of my top five all-time favorite MMA performances under his belt, the aforementioned one against Francis Ngannou, and then that second fight against uh, Daniel Cormier. So maybe I'm a little biased when I break it down and say I think Stipe beats him at both ends of the technical spectrum and if Ngannou wants to get too wild. The question really is, is he a better or worse fighter after that trilogy with Daniel Cormier? He's gone a lot of hard minutes. He's aged. I think he's 37, 38 years old now. Um, but shared gotten some valuable octagon time. Uh, you've got to think the wrestling is better after the training camps he put in preparing for those fights. Of course, Ngannou was prepared for Curtis Blades and Cain Velasquez, so he's certainly got his fair share of reps as well yeah i'm i'm expecting the best and the elitist level of mixed martial arts you get at the heavyweight division from stipe meocic because he's given me no reason to expect anything less just a guy who is a phenomenal striker with terrifying knockout power a guy with great wrestling i mean stuffing Cormier's takedowns and taking him down himself kind of says it all. I, you don't need a much bigger accolade than that. Um, and it's just a question of has, does he have the re explosiveness and the reflexes to do those first two, three minutes against Nganu again? Because he needs that. It, 
he's the only guy really who's had the answer of when Francis Ngannou wants to explode, having both the boxing sense and ability to read the shots and then the body to get the hell out of the way because those shots don't even need to land uh, half clean to knock guys out. It, it's so terrifying. And you saw, like, I don't think Ngannou landed much more than a glancing blow in that first round, like just skimming, and they left bruises on Stipe's face. So I love Stipe as an underdog until he gives me reason to doubt. I have, I'm not going to. I, it's such a funny thing with Francis Ngannou having like these beautiful showings, but in so few minutes that it's hard to know what to expect. Um, it's one of those fights though, where it's hard to feel like there's a loser. I mean, Ngannou has such a fantastic story as well. Um, working in sand mines in Cameroon, um, moving to Paris, being homeless, walking into an MMA gym and just completely turning his life around. Um, already having achieved probably just so much more than any he could have imagined at those times in Cameroon and such a enormous inspiration to so many young people in Africa I'm sure so if he can complete that last step and put a belt around his waist that would be huge but I can't root against Steve <laughs> I just can't do it so it's going to be such a fun main event. I am probably not going to breathe for the first two minutes of it. Cannot wait. A couple other fights on this card. Um, it's a good card overall. We've got to keep the show moving, so I'm not going to delve in too long to anything. But Luke Woodley, the co-main event, um, it mostly feels like the UFC is just trying to extract as much value as they can from Woodley just moving fighters up the rankings and Vincente Luque one of them Woodley's lost 15 rounds straight at this point a huge fall from grace for the former champ but I think this is has the potential to be an important legacy fight for him in terms of how we look back at his career because there's this argument to be made that Rory McDonald put out a game plan on how to beat Tyron Woodley. You, a really simple one. This guy just backs up against the cage and looks to land his right-hand bomb. If you have a good jab and pressure him forward, then it's easy work. McDonald does that, gets his title shots, and then Woodley has his championship reign where... He still kind of follows the same game plan. The the most impressive knockout being the one against uh, Robbie Lawler. But he lands these bombs mostly against Southpaws. I, even Wonderboy, I think, was in Southpaw when Woodley was landing the knockdown shots. But till Lawler knocks down the kind of disappointing fights to get the rematch against Thompson and Maya. And then uh, Usman, Burns, Covington all just in different ways, doing very much the same thing Rory McDonald did, just pressuring him forward and having an easy night at the office once you get him backing up against the cage. And Woodley knows this. You saw against Burns, you saw against Covington, he came forward, he did his best to pressure, not back up, but it just, for uh, Burns, it was a shot for Us or 
Covington, it was a takedown. And then once that happened, the dam broke and it went back to the same Woodley backing up the cat against the cage looking for that right hand and I feel like if he wasn't able to get it going against Covington a southpaw who he's had way more success over his career finding that shot against and literally the most punchable face in mixed martial arts if he couldn't find it there I don't really see him doing it against Luke because Luke an orthodox fighter um great pressure great jab does the two things you need to do to beat Woodley um, in the prime of his athletic career. And also some vicious leg kicks, which might catch Woodley badly. I, I don't think he's really had to deal with those too much in his career. And he does get very low, especially when he's pressuring forward. So I can see him trying that and then Luke just stinging him with those leg kicks. Um, but kind of a last chance for Woodley if he can do it against Luke he gets to prevent history from being rewritten that way and his recent decline being more attributed to age and a drop off in athleticism than him always having that hole in his game so real important chance for Woodley to shape his legacy uh I honestly, I can't think of really a fighter in the welterweight top 15. I'd pick uh, Woodley to beat though right now, except unless Damian Maia is still in there. So we'll see. Then you got Sean O'Malley coming back against uh, Thomas Almeida. And it feels like the UFC just trying to get the sugar show back going, matching him up against a guy on a two fight losing streak. It's really that loss on his record against Cheeto Vera it still just was kind of bizarre to me um freak leg injury ankle injury that came off like a checked kick that I've just never really seen a guy's legs go out like that um one of the closest things that comes to mind is O'Malley's other ankle injury that he had against uh Andre Sukumtot so that's going to be a question hovering over O'Malley for a while until he gets like four or five straight fights without having one of those freak leg injuries. Like, is this guy durable enough to compete? Um, we'll see. I, I think one highlight knockout and the sugar shows back in full swing and he'll be getting the matchups he wants and cracking at the top 15. This is an exciting guy with all the self-belief in the world. Um, the charisma to really steal the show and make it his own so kind of hoping for that because it just makes it fun it adds another variable to a great division but really just the eyes on the ankles and legs of O'Malley to see if they hold up and what happens if he's deluded himself in the best possible way saying I still feel undefeated or he's just unwilling to face reality and gonna suffer the consequences and then Last fight I wanted to touch on quickly is our girl, the Canadian Jillian Robertson, fighting Miranda Maverick. This fight rescheduled from about a month ago after Robertson had to pull out with some bizarre fight day uh, ill health. I, th- I think it's going to be a tough one for Robertson. Um, she just she didn't look comfortable enough in her last fight in against a girl who was a good striker and a good grappler and it caused her to force the grappling exchanges which led to her being like starting in a poor grappling spot and then 
just wasn't able to work her way out. When she forces those grappling exchanges against bad grapplers, she's able to like reverse it, scramble, and go to work. I think Miranda Maverick is a pretty solid grappler who I'd pick Robertson in a 50-50 grappling position, but if she's taking poor shots and ending up on the bottom to start, I don't think it's going to go her way. Um, Maverick has solid striking, not world beater by any means but she had that beautiful elbow in her last fight and just kind of pressures stays consistent um the one thing i do like for robertson is maverick throws a lot of like leg kicks to start her the exchanges which are just poorly planned poorly timed so i think that's her if i had to pick a way for robertson to win it would be maverick throws leg kicks to start the entry and Robertson catches and gets the takedowns off those uh, obviously pulling for her and hoping I can break down another savage finish that's going to wrap up this combat corner we'll be right back and we're back for some talking hockey and we're going to kick things off with a little bit of Canadian government news uh, which applies directly to the NHL the Canadian government poised to approve a seven-day quarantine period for NHL players coming from south of the border to north of the border. Um, This will involve extra testing, but it is a huge announcement for the upcoming April 12th deadline uh, in the NHL, meaning that American players now only have to quarantine for a week before joining their Canadian teams, uh, as opposed to 14 days. And so this is a huge development for Canadian teams looking to make moves before the deadline. Um, and basically just means that things are going to be a little bit more active, I imagine, on the Canadian side for trades. And it seemed like the Leafs were one of the teams that was really pushing the Canadian government to make this change. Um, so that might mean that they're going to be heavily <laughs> invested at the trade deadline, making moves, trying to propel themselves to uh, the top of the pile of favorites contending for the Stanley Cup. Uh, Max, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the news? Yeah, I I think it makes sense. If everything I understand from COVID, if you can test negative for seven days, you don't have it. So I think it takes a senseless week off the quarantine period, and it does make the trade deadline a little more interesting in that if come April 12th I don't think anyone really would have been holding their breaths for a big or any trades really in the Canadian division because by the time that two-week quarantine was over um, there wouldn't have been much of the season left to play out so with this it's, it's funny seven days isn't that much but I think it does make it a little more interesting Uh, on that day but I think uh, Dubas at least is still thinking sooner rather than later on pulling the trigger the name I keep hearing for the Leafs is Granlund which I would love Uh, I think he'd be a great third line center to plug in there Um, we saw last night the third line's been mostly Kerfoot, Spezza, Thornton kind of mishmashy a little bit of Hyman action um but if you have a consistent center to put there, it just makes everyone's roles a little bit easier to move around in the lineup. So definitely wouldn't mind that. Just depends what we're giving up. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get back to that uh, when we go through the games. But do, or Keith's certainly having fun playing mishmash with his 
moving players through the lineup. Uh, maybe we'll talk the other bit of NHL news and then get more specifically into the Canadian division. I don't know how much you heard about this. I was kind of all over this story with uh, referee Tim Peel being fired from the NHL for his hot mic comments. This is one of those moments why I have our Spotify sh- or our podcast marked as explicit so yeah. I can quote verbatim. It wasn't much, but I wanted to get a fucking call against Nashville early. You hear an I know in the background and the mic cuts out. He's only one month away from refing his last game, so it's not a huge... Uh, they didn't cut a referee off in the prime of their career or take much away from them. They, But it still sends a message. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so the the big things that kind of came out of this one were, um, for me, it's, you know that this is something that is happening in the NHL, and the the buzzword that everyone likes to use is game management, Um, and I think it's one thing to have game management, and it's another thing to have, um, what is the word I'm looking here, like balancing a game in terms of penalties, because Obviously, we know that this happens, and it happens in almost every sport, or at least where you've got kind of more subjective refereeing, like in basketball. You've got makeup calls. You've got guys who they, they at least try to make things level. In the NHL, now we have definitive proof that referees, they're, you could call almost everything in the NHL an infraction. Guys are hacking each other with their sticks left and right, using their hands, trying to get away with everything that they can. And so refs are going to pick and choose what to call penalties. And obviously they're trying to make that fairly even Uh, you hear the stories of later in games with teams winning the other teams more likely to get a power play. And it's, (laughs) it's so incredibly difficult to call games that you know, that this is happening and obviously they got caught for it, but um, it's not much of a story in my eyes. Yeah. It's uh, it is, funny you do hear like stories of this being exactly what the nhl does want to happen especially like with the star-studded teams and i did read like with this game you saw it play out exactly in that way and like back and forth penalties like nashville detroit nashville detroit nashville detroit i don't know if you saw this particular penalty call but the guy's stick didn't even touch his legs and you even saw that in the Leafs game last night where the penalties were going back and forth so I think uh we'd had three power plays Ottawa had had two and then they call uh Morgan Riley I believe off for a cross check which I still don't know what a definitive cross check penalty is versus a safe legal cross check it it seems like they just there's so many gray zones where they can call some things and or call a thing sometimes, leave it otherwise. What what you hope for, or what I hope for anyway, I've been thinking about this a little over the past few days, is one, you want it just consistently called within a game, like whatever you're whatever you've decided the standard for a slash is, for a hook is, um, for I almost never want to see elbows called, but like for a boarding, um for a cross check, just whatever you decide call it on both sides and two i i hope to see the tone of that being mainly like what takes away and affects scoring opportunities like with the 
things like interference obviously still being called um i do see a lot of hooks and slashes called that i think are just silly that really don't affect the play whatsoever um especially come the playoffs you don't want to see that but yeah this like balancing the power plays stuff is nonsense like you should be rewarded as a team for playing a cleaner brand of hockey and i hope this is a spark that ignites doing away with some of that because i mean i it's on my mind way more having this verbal admission like i i was thinking about especially with that cross check um it's just it's frustrating i it's better than basketball (laughs) a lot better than basketball in my opinion but uh yeah i i hope this is a turning point for the league yeah it's and I, I get back to the point of like game management. It's one thing to manage a game where you're calling penalties in order to keep people in line, right? That is something that is necessary in the game, um, especially in the playoffs because they get away with so much war. And that is obviously like the fact that there's different rules in the playoffs in the regular season is something that may continue to turn fans away from sports. Like it, it's something that also has to be figured out in my opinion. Um, but it's one thing to call penalties in order to maintain control over the game, right? The referees need to always have a handle on what happens in hockey games because otherwise things can get out of hand. Uh, And it's another thing to really balance penalties. What I know is that if you don't balance penalties, then you are going to have refs who are just eviscerated by fans for their perceived bias of teams. And um, as refs like, Right now, evenly calling penalties, it's not really making anyone upset. A lot of the quotes from players and such were that, yeah, we know it kind of goes on, but as long as they are consistent and honest with us about it, it's not really a big deal. Um, Because you're going to have those teams that their identity is to kind of skirt the rules, and that's why they've been so successful. Obviously, Boston comes to mind. And so if you start calling penalties – more frequently on those teams it's going to take away from the kind of persona they built up for so long so it it truly is a really delicate balance for the nhl here you don't just want to start calling more penalties because it slows the game down um it gets fans a little bit more upset especially the older school fans which are the core of your your fan base but then if you're not calling these penalties then it makes the game more dangerous and uh, you have moments like this where they're truly just calling phantom calls to to balance things out. So uh, I don't really have a side to the argument. I feel fine with the way it is right now. Um, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of it because I'm not sure what approach they're going to take to really make any changes. It's kind of like, okay, we got caught. We have to do something. And mostly because this guy's not going to be in the league much longer anyways. So they did something to make it seem like they're going to make a change, but I don't think anything's going to change from this. Yeah. It, well, I am just kind of surprised. Like they, the very next day and like a very definitive statement with it, which maybe it's just posturing and they feel like that's enough. But I, I feel like if they wanted to sweep this under the rug, they probably could have. So the fact that they didn't maybe indicates, uh, yeah, it's, it's so hard going back and forth between just let them play and feeling like your team is uh, having 
genuinely less success scoring because the other team is playing a somewhat dirty brand of hockey. I've always felt so badly for uh, Pittsburgh Penguins fans watching like what teams do to Sidney Crosby come playoffs times like but at the same time you can't really be calling a whistle every 20 seconds of the game. So yeah we'll see as long as our teams don't suffer I guess. uh... Yeah. And yeah, it this <laughs> story just leaves me kind of same with such a like ah. yeah it's well that's the thing right is as leafs fans you think of the two extreme outcomes either we should be getting a power play five times a period and just scoring so many goals on these teams with all of our great talent or the other way is nothing's getting called and matthews with his wrist injury gets reaggravated and he misses an entire playoff series and then we're left sitting what could have been right those are the two extremes but that's kind of where the NHL has to find a space and they've tried to operate within that space, but it's, it's so different game to game. And that's the thing with sports, right? Is it's very subjective with human error. And uh, once you do something, it cannot be changed and rewritten. And so, uh, yeah, they're going to have to take a long, hard look at what, what direction they want to take. And uh, we'll see where it goes from there. Yeah, I, I think with technology, it, I'd love to see something like what the NBA does with its two-minute game report. But like, just you could make this official. You could say after every week, we're gonna like put on video every like penalty that was called, and say whether we like it or not, and use video replay over time to try and establish like a consistent basis for we like these penalties. We think these are all softy penalties and try and like i said establish some consistency we think these should have been penalties called and make it official say like say the quiet part out loud it's already been done it's not gonna happen it's just fun to fantasize yeah i it feels like they definitely already do this and they don't want to share that information with the public and yeah they're just gonna continue to figure out new ways they experiment a lot with like preseason games in the end, I don't think much change is going to be made until a technology develops that will be able to consistently track specific infractions that they want to consistently call. All right, we can move on to the Canadian division now. <laughs> cool. So our first topic in the North Division is not a game, but in fact, uh, the first presence of the COVID-19 virus in the North Division Uh, The Canadians Canucks game postponed last weekend and Canadians games will not be played until uh, I believe until Sunday. Um, So so that's just an Oilers game that was postponed and then they've postponed two more and then a Sunday game against the Sens. Yes. And that's going to reshuffle um, the game schedule and and how many games those two teams are going to have to play coming down the stretch. Uh, I'm not sure yet whether that's going to help or hinder them, depending on, I guess, either the hot streak they're, they're on, cold streak, or just generally fatigue might come into play if you're playing a bunch of games condensed because they already are so this season. So um, something to follow, but it seems like they've managed to contain it and it hasn't spread to the other teams in the division. And hopefully uh, they'll take their 10 days and, and get back going because we're getting very close to the home stretch of this season. Yeah. And then in terms of games this week, 
I I think I'm ready to call it a season on the Calgary Flames after their last two games against the Ottawa Senators. Um, dropping both games in disappointing ways at different times, but it really just comes down to goal scoring. I mean, so the first game, Ottawa went up one nothing early, and then Calgary was very dominant throughout most of the rest of the game. And we'll get back to this when we talk about Leaf Sens, but the Senators did a very good job of protecting the middle of the ice and keeping the Flames from having any like real grade A scoring chances. Um, a lot of perimeter shots, but credit to Calgary, they stayed in it. They managed to find a goal off a breakaway pass from Lucic um, so not able to like generate that scoring chance in the offensive zone already and 1-1 but then Ottawa man this team just fucking hangs in there and finds a way to score and they take it in what ends up being a bit of a heartbreaker against Calgary but it's really the second game that has me uh ready to call a lid on their season they they know what they didn't do right going into that second game they they didn't get the puck into the middle of the ice and like generate any real threatening scoring chances they looked like they were poised to do that in the first period against the Sens they start playing a bit better and then they even find a goal in the second period with a Giordano shot and all they've got to do is close out, which they've done all season. They hadn't dropped a game yet when they're leading going into the third period. And then the Senators just take over in the third period. I mean, they get one goal. Okay, fine. But it was really after that. Um, the Flames just, they they should have been playing for their season in that moment. Tied 1-1 in the third period against the last place team in the division. Already having like such a mountain to climb. They need to start making up for it, let alone adding more to that mountain. Um, and the third period was just all Senators. I mean, their 2-1 goal came off of like a three-plus-minute shift from Noah Hannafin, where I think they had another player like past the two-minute mark, and everyone else was like a minute 30 by the time that goal went in. But just like fantastic dominant zone pressure from the Senators that was just the accumulation of a great forechecking third period where Calgary got nothing going. And that, that was kind of... The goal culminated that moment, but... It, even before that you just like you're playing for your season man you've got to be the dominant team in that third period and they weren't and then even after that goal they just really the urgency the pressure the forechecking none of it was where it needed to be they weren't generating those scoring chances in the middle of the ice um i they've struggled the most against the senators this season of any team so there's something to be said maybe for it being a bad matchup but i just the way they played in that second and third period um just kind of like a defeatist attitude it seemed like and daryl sutter i maybe it's a bit too early to call it but this is a team that's season struggle has been goal scoring and Daryl Sutter has like shored up this team as like having a better forecheck, finishing their checks more, being more defensively solid, not the kind of coach that's able to spark the goal scoring it seems like. So 
maybe it's a bit early to call it a poor move and we see if he can take this team in the right direction come this off season and get the mentality to a place where it wants to be but yeah i i feel pretty ready to say the calgary flames are absolutely not going to be in the playoffs this season and drop them out yeah it's it's tough this is the second straight season where they've had to switch coaches halfway through the year um that's obviously going to have a pretty big impact on the way that your team operates and, and plays their games and the style that they come with uh i guess if you're general manager of the Calgary Flames, you are looking at possible trade scenarios at this point. Um, definitely a team that could sell and get a lot of assets for their top guys. Uh, Monaghan, Kachuk, Goudreau, you probably want to hang on to at least one of those guys because they're still really young, but um, they definitely have some pieces that would interest other teams. And so uh, just something to think about. And I feel bad for Calgary fans, but this is just feeling a bit like a tossaway season uh, with all the coaching troubles you've gone through in the past. You got to hope that at least Sutter establishes a good rapport with the team and something that they can move forward with so that they're not looking to make another change uh, by the time the season's over. Yeah, I, there, I do not envy the GM. I mean, on paper, this should be a playoff contending team. They've got the talent, but it doesn't really feel like it's getting much better and you're not getting the draft picks real you're doing well enough to not get like the top draft picks to keep bolstering the roster um mark giordano your captain and longtime best defenseman at 37 so that's the defensive core is only getting worse um bennett didn't work out goudreau seems to be stuttering guys like lucic getting older you've got monahan and chicago if you want to try and build the team around those two but i some tough decisions for the office and what direction to go and i do not envy them no sir <laughs> another this, team yeah sorry you go ahead this Ottawa Senators team, man, I I don't know what to make of them. I mean, they've looked like crap against some teams, and they've looked like such a promising team against others, uh, m- most of all against the Flames and our Leafs. And I saw a lot of the same things from the Senators team that I saw against the Flames with in some areas only marginally better performance by the Leafs. Um, they do kind of turtle and shell up defensively focusing on like not getting the best breakouts but just protecting their end like five guys back so that there's not going to be many odd man rushes um keeping the play at the perimeter and really like clogging up the middle of the ice i did think the leafs did a better job of generating uh, scoring chances in the middle most notably probably they off the turnovers is one area Ottawa's for sure going to have to work on um, the breakouts, but they just protect the net shell up and then just fucking find a way to score. It's, <laughs> it's, Oh, that was a tough one. Yeah. They're, they're having a classic rebuilding team year, right? Where you have these moments throughout the season that the fans can latch onto. Um, you've got a couple of young, talented players that, the fans can really key in on and, and watch their development. 
Um, and every result that you get is a positive. If it's a win, great. You're working towards something. If it's a loss, great. We're getting closer to that high pick that we want moving forward. Um, it's nice to not have expectations. Obviously, you want to win and be a top contending team because that is definitely more fun. But there's something to be said when there's no expectations on a team and you can just kind of enjoy every result that you're getting. Um, can I just ask a question? Why are the Sens backup goalies progressively becoming greater Vesna candidates as they go deeper into their uh, like sack of just stuff that they throw out on the ice, Philip Gustafson, and then uh, last night against the Leafs, Anton Forsberg, who hadn't played uh, in the NHL yet this season. He has been an NHL goalie in the past. But just it's like they went from Matt Murray, who – has been brutal this year for them. And it's like, they got Marty Brodeur and, and Patrick Waugh backing them up <laughs> yeah. in Ottawa is crazy. I'm wondering if we see a trade out of Ottawa come cause they've got Murray as their uh, guy long-term. And now with Gustafson and Forsberg, who, I mean, you want to see more out of them, but I mean, Gustafson was playing so well against Calgary. The question was, do you just go to him like back to back nights? Because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And then Forsberg comes in and gives him some contention for the job. Such a good problem for to have the senators with. Oh, just I mean, it, it does partly go to the defensive team identity I'm talking about. They do manage to limit a lot of the scoring in the middle of the ice and i think the numbers do get a bit padded from a lot of perimeter shooting but uh both goalies certainly had their moments over the past weeks with some stunning saves and even joey decor who's now injured but was a kid who came in and got his first win against the leafs so just the senators throwing goalies out there and they're sticking um on the other side in the other net jack campbell <laughs> continuing to play well when he's in the net <laughs> i have a pretty strong uh, hunch on what the he's going to be doing in practice these next couple days yeah. a couple of blunders playing the puck but again really 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 solid when he's actually in his crease made a couple of huge saves for the leafs to make sure that they didn't have any like momentum killing goals uh from the senators obviously a shorty hurts uh, but when he needed to make a save, he made a save. Uh, and that's been huge for the Leafs. And they managed to pull out in overtime. If Matthews had scored that nasty move that he pulled off at the end there, would have been one of the goals of the season. Really nice uh, inside-outside move and then almost tucked it by. And then Marner finds Hall for the game-winning goal. Um, I did yeah. want to talk about uh, Justin Hall a little I've really noticed him in these past couple games trying to add some offense to his game which I I'm not quite sure how I feel about I mean he's a still up-and-coming defenseman who has some we haven't fully excavated the potential yet so if he can add that to his game that would be amazing I'm not sure that I he can just the identity of the player but i really have noticed him being more confident carrying the puck up um joining in on the rushes pinching like being willing to wheel off the blue line during offensive pressure to look for the shot and one way that's being rewarded is those minutes in three on three ot with uh keith being happy to give it to justin hall rather than go on jake muzzin or even a third forward and that pays off with him being in the right spot in the right time to put that one away so i don't know that um 
the dedication to the offensive mindset paying off too much in that goal like I think anyone scores that but it certainly paid off in him having the ice time to be there to do that and that's where he thrives right that is where he experienced so much success in the AHL when Mike Babcock wouldn't give him a go um he's a smooth skater and he loves opening up the play and joining the rush. And obviously Sheldon Keefe's empowered him to do that a little bit more. Um, he's on the shutdown pair, I guess you would call it with Jake Muslim, but uh, a guy who loves to have the freedom to move up. And of course, when you've got so many talented offensive forwards to play with, it's going to make you look a little better. Part of me wonders with the trade deadline, getting closer in the Leafs, obviously going to be in the market for a defenseman of some kind, just to even, uh, shore up more of that depth at the defensive position because if you lose any one of your top four guys you got to start going to some really young players as your backup or Martin Marincin but I don't ever want to see him play another playoff game for the Leafs um, so there's got to be part of Justin Hall thinking either I'm going to lose some of these minutes to a guy coming in or I could be headed out the door if they're looking to make an upgrade and so that might be part of the motivation that he's been starting to turn things up again this week I think playing two games in like 10 days for the Leafs has really helped a lot of these guys get healthier and, and rest and recuperate. I think that's a big part of it too. And, and then lastly, just Sheldon Keefe, Justin Hall had a great start to the season and that was when he was wheeling and dealing. And so Sheldon Keefe's probably getting on him say, Hey, this is your game. If, if you can do this and still maintain your defensive responsibility, then go do it. And uh, Justin Hall has really been empowered this season and has been a great guy for the Leafs. Yeah, and you want to see the the passing really is what I hope to see because I think teams really clamping down and locking on to our top six defensively, um, top nine even. And you saw that in the uh, Mikheyev goal. Really, 80, 70% of that goal, TJ Brody, uh, 25% Zach Hyman, and 5% Liam Mikheyev. But um, if, if Hall can... I mean, he's got a great couple of buddies on the bench to take notes from in Morgan Riley and TJ Brody, but you can move the puck and then skate and you know teams are going to be like all over. Okay, where's Austin Matthews? Where's Mitch Marner? Where's William Nylander? Where's John Tavares? And that's going to present openings. So learning how to spot those openings and thrive in them could be just one of the pieces the Leafs need to break out of this kind of mediocre slump that I still feel like they're in despite winning their last two games that and power plays yes so big big matchup a couple of matchups on Saturday we've got the Leafs and the Oilers which will be really really fun always fun when these two match up the Leafs have been successful against Edmonton this season I think five and two is what we had their record down head to head uh, not including overtime and shootout results and uh, then you've got the the Flames going up against the Jets. Uh, the Flames really, really need this one, and I'm hoping they get it because the Jets are right on the Leafs' tail. But uh, a couple of great North Division matchups coming up this weekend, and we'll look forward to recapping them on Monday. Um, I think that's going to do it for the Talking Hockey segment. We'll take one more break and come up to wrap the show with uh, some football and some baseball. And we're back to wrap up the show with some football and baseball notes. Owen, take it away. Absolutely. Uh, so a couple of quick signings of interest that I wanted to touch on. The Philadelphia Eagles signing Joe Flacco to be their backup uh, for Jalen Hurts. Uh, he continues to find new teams to join. 
along uh, his uh, storied career. The Colts re-signing T.Y. Hilton, um, a perpetually injured player, but still with a ton of upside uh, that the Colts can maintain in their roster and gives Carson Wentz another weapon heading into the season uh, and some continuity there. So good for them to get him on a, on a cheaper deal. And then the Cardinals signing uh, Super Bowl hero Malcolm Butler uh, to add to their defense. The Cardinals have been one of the teams that have made a ton of low-key moves that really have improved their team. Uh, they made a focus on improving their offensive line. Key uh, trade was acquiring Rodney Hudson from the Oakland Ra- or from the Las Vegas Raiders, pardon me, uh, and really improve their offensive line because they are one of the teams that the model of the modern NFL franchise is to really build your team quickly around that quarterback on a rookie scale deal, because that is the most valuable contract in sports is having a quarterback who's probably worth $40 million as we saw Dak Prescott sign for. Um, But he's on a rookie scale deal, which means you have a ton of cap room to sign other guys. Uh, That's why you saw them get JJ Watt. That's why they, you saw them get uh, AJ Green recently to add another veteran receiver to their core that includes Hopkins, Fitzgerald, uh, Christian Kirk, Andy Isabella, guys like that. Um, so they improve the offensive line to really protect their franchise quarterback, Kyler Murray. And they've been adding pieces on the defensive end, cheaper pieces, uh, but pieces that fit together. And then JJ Watt as their big splash. And with JJ Watt and Chandler Jones, and then you've got Isaiah Simmons and, of course, uh, their excellent safety, whose name escapes me right now, uh, but it's it's going to uh, – Buda Baker, there you go. Uh, the Cardinals are a team that made some minor moves, but they are rapidly improving, and it just shows this NFC West division is going to be an absolute uh, grind with – you could see all four of these teams make the playoffs this, next year with how the playoff format works now. Uh, with three wildcard teams, because you've got Seattle, who have, still have Russell Wilson. You have the San Francisco 49ers, who are going to come back healthy. You have uh, these Arizona Cardinals. And then you have the Los Angeles Rams, who will have Matthew Stafford and Aaron Donald. And so all four of these teams are really good. And it's just going to be fun to watch this division next year. So I really wanted to make a quick note of that. I think the difference for the Cardinals is it's going to come down to Cliff Cliff Kingsbury, uh, who's probably the worst coach out of the four in that division. Um, But we'll be interesting to see because they have their franchise guy, Kyler Murray, and they're building a solid team around him. So uh, we'll see what happens. And just wanted to highlight that. We move into baseball. We have one week until opening day. Very, very exciting. I'm going to try and have uh, my season preview coming up on Monday. I will do really quick run through my picks for division winners, wildcards, MVPs of both conferences and Cy Young awards. I think I'll try and do it quickly. Maybe take about 15 minutes should be good. Um, I'm not the most knowledgeable baseball fan, but definitely have a interest and (laughs) essentially feels like you've got two top teams in the same division and everyone else is kind of thinking about how they're going to make a run for themselves. The Blue Jays are one of those teams that are in the mix. Uh, Although they have been hit by the injury bug early this season, their prospective closer, Kirby Yates, having Tommy John surgery, so he is done for the season, uh, which is a huge blow to take early. Um, Nate Pearson 
has suffered a couple setbacks in his return from his injury, so he probably won't get his first start a couple weeks into the season. George Springer had a grade two oblique strain. They say he will be good for opening day, but want to be really cautious with him because uh, he's your big free agent marquee guy coming into this season. And Robbie Ray has been dealing with some injuries. So those are four key contributors. Um, obviously, a couple other guys who are hurt, but that that's tough for the Blue Jays and their depth is really going to be important this season. And that's why they got some of those uh, extra arms. That's why you have a deeper outfield than most teams because again, if Springer needs to take a week off, you can just throw in Randall Grichuk or you can throw in Teoscar Hernandez. Um, so yeah, just looking to see what the Blue Jays do. They might be in the market to try and sign one more arm in spring training before the season starts, but really looking forward to it <laughs> a week away and I'll have that preview for you. And that wraps up my show notes. Uh, I want to thank everyone very much for listening and, uh, Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We're on YouTube uh, with some some great content there. <laughs> Mostly just hearing the same thing, but you get to see our facial reactions. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit more personal and, and we want to get that conversation going. So reach out whenever you can. We're on Twitter as well, on Instagram. Uh, and yeah, stay safe, everyone, and enjoy your weekend. Max, I'll throw it over to you. Yeah, wanted to close out quickly saying it feels like the Miami Open really starts today with most of the big names in the tournament playing their first game. Uh, Naomi, and then in Canada, we got Felix and Bianca playing today. So eyes on that. I think it kicks off around one. Um, I'll be watching. You should as well. Uh, break it down Monday. Sports Next Door signing off. <laughs>